Welcome to Get Serious, our new series of podcasts where we talk to a wide variety of interesting people. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Jonathan Pooley. In 1989, Jonathan co-founded the business that became Natural Products Worldwide, a global leader in the contemporary giftware market. I'll be talking to Jonathan about work-life balance, innovation and creativity, perseverance and resilience, and why you don't need salespeople or lawyers. Good evening, Jonathan. Good morning, John. I think it's safe to say that you were an overnight success after about 20 years. Would that be... uh... (laughs) Yeah, that's about right, yeah. Um... (laughs) Yeah, it was a long overnight. Yeah, it was a long, long, it was a long slow burn, but we got there in the end. <laughs> Back in the early days, what did you actually start with? How did you start the business up? With almost nothing. When we were well, startup wasn't really a word, was it? That's, that happened a bit later. I think the phrases like startups and entrepreneurs weren't really in use. I didn't think we were. We were just people who started a business, um, and I think it, it was about forty or fifty quid for a couple of boxes of business cards to be printed. And we had a secondhand typewriter, which was the entire technology in the business. There was no mobile phones. If we sold something, I'd go to the typewriter, bang out the invoice on triplicate paper with carbon, <laughs> go down to the post office, buy a stamp and send the invoice off to the customer. And that was the beginning of the business. I've known you since about 1985, 35 years. During that time, one of the things that's always interested me is your approach to life in terms of your business and also doing the things you love, the sea, water, the outdoors. You, you managed to build a successful business over those years and maintain a very healthy work-life balance. I think that is true. And I think that those parts of my life were always very important to me. The, um, I mean, I've been a, a lifelong uh, windsurfer and um, yeah surfing snowboarding all that stuff but primarily windsurfing was my 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 weekend activity of choice all through those years when I was working in London and yeah it was sufficiently important to me that I would just build that time into my life to make it happen it's one of those sports actually that you have to be reasonably dedicated to it because you've got to be able, you've got to be available when the wind blows it was one of my earliest ambitions was to be a beach bum in fact i think if you'd have interviewed me when i was about 18 and in the process of failing all my a levels and failing to get to university i would have told you that that was my plan was to be a beach bum and to to get plenty of windsurfing and surfing time i had another ambition which was to sail across the atlantic in a sailing boat to the caribbean which was a long held. In fact, when I was, when you and I first met, John, do you remember I took that job at Brighton Marina? I do. Um, my plan was to facilitate this sailing across the Atlantic. My plan was to jump on a boat that was leaving for the Caribbean and get a crewing position. But sadly, that didn't happen. But you I don't did think, sail I don't think many the of those boats from I don't think many of those boats from Brighton Marina ever left the marina, actually. I think I was in the wrong <laughs> sort of place. I should have been in Falmouth or somewhere. <laughs> But you did manage to sail across the Atlantic. Dawn and I crossed the Atlantic the first time uh, to celebrate my 40th birthday and her 30th. So that's going back a bit now. Uh, that was while I was in the, in the thick of it with Worldwide Co and Natural Products, running a busy business. And somehow, I'm not quite sure how I managed it, but I took the time out to 
buy an old sailing boat and sail her in stages from England to Antigua and the Caribbean. Um, and then pretty much went straight back to work. And I guess that, that experience um, made it pretty clear to me that the, the lifestyle of living on a sailing boat, which I was very keen on, um, didn't really mix with running a business. You know, they, you, you really needed to be. <laughs> it was quite time consuming. Um, so at that point, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll come back to this when, when I've got a bit more time. Um, and yeah, amazingly, it, didn't, it wasn't too much longer before I was doing it full time. So, To me, it was never just, you weren't ever, ever just a weekend warrior. What I always found interesting is that you, you were prepared to leave the business in the hands of, of others, really. So there's, there, there must have been an element of, of both confidence that it wasn't all going to fall apart where, without your input, or you had a great deal of trust in the, the people you hired. Yes, both. Um, so, well, Michael and I set up that first business, you know, in... Michael's... Your business partner? Lifelong business partner, yeah. So we met, um, we were both working as buyers at Next Retail in the late 80s. And when we decided to set up that company as a partnership, I think that was such an important turning point in the business. And that partnership that we started was, we worked together, Michael and I worked together every day for how long? 25 years or best part of 30 years probably, if you include all the next years. And having that partnership allowed, well, both of us, I guess, although it was primarily me who took advantage of it. You know, if you've got a trusted partner in your business who, um, who can <clears throat> run it for you for a couple of weeks, you can go on holiday. Yeah. And that just isn't the case for a lot of sole proprietors who've founded and owned their own business. It's years and years before they feel free to actually, you know, to do that, to, to, I think it's quite, it can be quite a lonely business, you know, and I've seen friends of mine who've, who've grown businesses in the same way I did, but r- rather than doing it as partnership, they did it on their own. And I think that's, it can be quite a stressful, lonely affair that you've got a lot to worry about and no one to share it with. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that that's, that's one of the many benefits of a, have a partnership is you get to go away on holiday which was as you say very important to me probably more than to most people in my experience is many business owners have a tendency to micromanage and feel that they have to be across everything and it, it strikes me that was never your approach i was always happy to hire people as soon as we could afford to i mean obviously at first there weren't, there weren't any people it was just us right. i was I was always happy to hire people and let them run their own departments and, and come to me when they needed. It wasn't something that I don't know about micromanaging. I mean, when you start a business, everything is micromanaging because you're doing it all. And then you gradually have to relinquish these things yeah. one by one as the business grows and figure out what it is that you do want to do or what's the most valuable thing for you to be doing with your, your time. You know, there's so many hours in the day. Well, that's um, a good opportunity for me to ask you about where you did add value. What I saw it was very much the innovation and the creativity. Look, so when we started that business, we 
we had left, um, you know, left our salaries, left the corporate world behind us, and we struck yeah. off, set up our own little partnership with the idea that we could trade in products that we were interested in and we should be able to make a living doing that. I remember one night in Hong Kong, we sat down and calculated how much money we'd made for next between us with our endeavors. <laughs> you know, mm. And at the time, I think I was on a junior buyer's salary of about £12,000 a year or something. Um, and we were creating this fortune for our bosses. And I think that was the inspiration was that we could, even if we weren't that great at it, we should be able to make a living. So over the 20 odd years of trading, we did try an awful lot of different things. And we were always driven by the sales results. You know, if you find a yeah. winner, then you, you back it and you go with that. Um, but I think that the, our focus on product was, uh, it was almost like the, the, the product for us was the business. We were very interested in the stuff that we were selling. And it was a time when that category of, well, what is now called, I don't know what you'd call it, contemporary giftware or something. It didn't really exist. So at the end of the 80s, there were a few very cool shops selling these hip mm. objects. It, it's almost impossible to remember what it was like <laughs> those days. Mm. It was a very small world. It was a very small niche that we were really interested in. And we used to go off to these trade shows around Europe. Um, and we'd walk the halls of these shows. The trade shows were everything in those days, right? It's pre-internet, mm. pre-mobile phones. You would walk the halls and be inspired by what other people were selling. And it pretty soon was clear to us that there was a whole world of really cool, interesting product that was out there and wasn't being sold in the UK. So it was quite easy for us to start picking products, signing up to be the UK distributor for them, bringing them over in relatively small volumes from Europe without any huge setup costs or mm. minimum orders. It was actually really very little barrier to entry. And, and we would then come over to the UK market and build our trade show stand and put out the things that we thought were cool things that people hadn't seen before. And, and they liked it. And, and the, I guess in those days, we were, we were really focused on the UK market, on our domestic market. And I think there were, every town in the UK had one of those shops that was, had a little department selling cool objects. And some of them mm. were like their stores or some of them were furniture stores. But the, it, the, there was the beginning of this kind of niche of very slick, desirable giftware and that was the that was what we decided was going to be our area that we trade in so i guess there were in those days there was probably only half a dozen companies who were supplying that market and i think by the time we sold the business there was there were halls full of <laughs> young kind of wannabe competitors setting up to to do what we'd done i guess Pre-COVID, when I travelled, it was always a bit of a hobby of mine. Whenever I found myself in a city, I always liked going to museums and art galleries. I'd go into the museum shop and find how many worldwide products I could find. Yeah, yeah same. I, I really enjoyed that, actually. Um, and that actually became a really great market for us, particularly in the US. Those museum stores and gallery stores, yeah. you know, exit through the gift shop. Um, yeah. was a really good fertile ground for our products and we were developing products with an eye to that market as well coming back to the point about the product being king for us 
product really was far more important than any other aspect of the business. And I did see contemporary companies to ours who were, it was really, it was more like a sales effort. Their, their company was based around the sales director and the sales targets and the sales reps. And the product was almost an afterthought. And it always seems wow. to me that you probably could create a successful business that way. But it seemed to me far easier that if you've got a really great product that people want, you don't need it any of sell that. itself. We didn't, any of we didn't really need a sale. We didn't have a sales team. It was people would beat a path to our door because we had the cool stuff that they wanted. And that was really the model for many years before we finally even produced a catalogue or had any salespeople. We were really quite hard to buy from for many years. You had to show up at a trade show stand and queue up to place an order. Perhaps tell us a couple of your favourite products. After uh, you started me thinking about the history of, uh, of the business and how it all started, I was trying to visualise what would have been the first collection of products that we put out on a trade show stand in London. And there's a few of them that I remember, which were actually in their own way, very beautiful utility products. So we didn't do any development. We just found things that were being sold in different parts of the world mm. and brought them to the UK. I remember a Mexican fly swat, which was a very... <laughs> a very <laughs> simple um beautifully utilitarian item made out what of made it mexican out of interest it's made in mexico we shipped a pallet of them from from mexico city i think um, right. so it literally was somewhere. a mexican fly sort yeah we sold it for a couple of quid i've still got one somewhere it's gradually falling apart but it was a very beautiful simple artifact from from a different part of the world and it was sold i think we sold it into all the cool design stores in London at the time. We certainly would have put it into the Conrad shop, Liberty. Yeah. We were, yeah. um, but there was also, I remember some Mexican products which were, well, it was basically a stash box made from glass in Mexico. And it was illustrated with cartoons that were produced by the Mexican government to persuade young Mexicans not to get into drugs. So there were these <laughs> demonized, um, drug user cartoons which had been laminated onto the glass and made into these beautiful ironic boxes with, which were emblazoned with these Mexican warnings about the dangers of estimulantes <laughs> and they were really charming beautifully made objects yeah. and we brought those to London and I think we sold them into uh, Paul Smith had them in his Floral Street shop and the Conrad shop bought them. And it was really quite, I think that first collection of products that we had, which although it was rather random, it was quite an arty collection of well-considered objects. And I would love to have them. I haven't got any of these. Except for the Mexican fly swat, of course. Example was a pressed aluminium dust pan, a yard pan from the States, which was made in Ohio and had been made out of the same tooling for about 50 years, this massive, great, oversized American like dustpan and brush, which again, we sold into all these design stores. It was a cheap utility item, but it's one of the great found objects from another part of the world that you can put it under a spotlight in London and suddenly it looks very cool and desirable. And What, what about something you developed as opposed to, to found? What would you be, what would be your favorite? Yeah, well, that, that was, this was how the business evolved, I suppose, because in the early days, we didn't really have the money to do our own product development. We didn't really have the wherewithal. Mm. Uh, we couldn't really handle the volumes required to be manufacturing the Far East. So we were buying on a small scale from, <clears throat> from European suppliers and we were inspired by those 
by the rather more advanced market for that kind of thing in Europe at the time. And we were feeding from that. And it was only through many years of growing slowly, distributing other people's products with smaller margins that eventually we had the, um, the money and the wherewithal and the confidence to go back to the Far East and, and start creating our own stuff, which is, is a big turning point, you know, because then mm. you're into, uh, you're into, well, much bigger margins, much bigger quantities. Yeah. Um, M- much more risk. And I guess we'd also built the infrastructure by that time. So we had the customers, you know, we had a global network mm. of customers and distributors by that time who were keen to buy what we had. So rather than importing someone else's ideas and selling it only to the UK market, we were able to make the big leap to having our own branded products mm. made generally in the Far East, which we could then export to the world. So obviously you, your market at that point becomes enormous and your margins are such that um, you can grant generous discounts to distributors who, you know, so you actually can, you can move through all of the, um, the vast minimum quantities that the Chinese factories were demanding. So uh, obviously growth followed. Yes, I, th- I think we grew very, very slowly for the first five years. Well, actually, the first part of the story, John, is that the, at the end of our first year of trading, there was um, a huge bad debt where our, our main customer went out of business, um, wow. owing us a huge amount of money, basically our whole first year's turnover, which we never got paid for. So the next few years were spent really digging our way out of that catastrophe and out of that debt, which we did, and we managed to pay all of our suppliers and, and sell all of the stock. We had to get a lot of stock back from the receivers, which we sold on market stalls and elsewhere to, for the business to survive. Wow. So I think the first five years coming out of the, coming out of the recession of the nineties and on the back of that disastrous, huge, bad debt, um, we grew very slowly. We were in, you know, yeah. we, we paid off the debt, got ourselves back into the black and were, opportunistically picking off you know, products mainly from those European markets. And I think we probably got the turnover up to about a million quid, but it probably took, I don't know, maybe five years to get to that level. And then I guess we went from 1 million to 5 million much faster. Can't remember the exact dates, but then from 5 million to 10 million and 10 million to 15 million was, well, we were on a fast track, you know, by the time yeah. we got into those final few years before we, we sold the business, it was clear that we were really onto something, you know, that the machine that we'd built was, was, um, was running at high revs, if you like. And yeah. it was, it was, it was producing a load of cash, which was the idea, but it was, it was a very hungry machine, you know, it needed a lot of fuel. It needed a lot of new ideas coming in at the top end, a constant flow of good new right. ideas, a yeah. pipeline of new products that was never ending. It was relentless, you know, and we had this uh, ready market for all of our products all around the world, always hungry for something new. And we were cooking up God knows how many, I mean, maybe 50 new products each season, twice a year. Uh, so it, it was, when a company's growing at that pace, it's um, it's exhilarating, and I think we realised that we were on we were, this thing. You know, from from wondering whether this was going to be the way I was ever going to make my living, I guess. You know, in the early nineties, through to <laughs> accepting that 
yeah, probably I'm not going to have to get a job, which was, you know, the, the primary aim um, through to, wow, we really have created something very profitable here. Um, and though through those realizations to the point where it was, it effectively became for the last few years, okay, well, let's just hold on tight and, and go with this because at that point it was like a runaway train, you know, you just had to ride it. And I felt like I was living at a thousand miles an hour for about five years traveling between, we set up a sales office in the US, traveling between the States, Far East, running the business based in London. It became like the business had a, a life of its own and it was rather than trying to force growth, we were trying to control growth to a manageable level. And you still had to fit your holidays in as well. Well, I always managed to do that. I mean, remember that my primary ambition was to be a beach bump. So I was, I, was, I was prepared to defer that to a certain extent. But yeah, I used, I used to go away for a couple of weeks at Christmas. We used to shut the business down over Christmas. Everyone was exhausted. And I used to clear off at that point. And then I'd tack on a bit of time either end until I was taking maybe a month off at Christmas. But that was very important to me, John. That was actually the reason I was doing it. Well, the reason I was doing it. What was, what was I ever doing it for? You know, I needed... I needed to um, to pay the rent, put food mm. on the table. And then I was quite happy that the business was capable of paying my daughter's school fees and paying off a mortgage. There was never any expectation of those things, I don't think, at the start. Whereas the, um, the requirement to go windsurfing at weekends was never wavered. <laughs> <laughs> Ethics. Business integrity. Over the years, I'm sure you've dealt with some paragons of virtue and some, <laughs> I don't know what the opposite of a paragon is. What, what would you say your own business values? Going back to this question about relationships, you must have built some very strong relationships. You don't, keep a, you don't grow a business by screwing people, basically. And no, quite. That's actually... Um... I would say that was one of the major guiding principles was just there didn't need to be anything too complicated about it. Did they? You're buying and selling products and you treat people well, staff, suppliers, customers. I tell you what, we never had any lawyers, John. So in our 20 odd years of trading, we never went to court. And I know that similar businesses to mine spent probably one of their biggest overheads was legal fees you know? yeah. <laughs> in litigation um, or something. It just seemed very easy to us to, very easy to be able to avoid all of that. Um, no, we didn't screw anyone over. We always paid, I think we paid every invoice that was ever written to us. We were never in court. We never went bust. And all of that just seemed to be basically common sense. You know, lawyers are very expensive. <laughs> you certainly yeah. want to avoid all of that if you can. So... I mean, some people live their lives through litigation. And it's something that we just never, ever did. You know? And even when there were issues, even when we had a few times actually inadvertently infringed uh, copyright yeah. issues, or we were asked to cease and desist on more than one occasion. And it was usually an innocent state. I mean, we weren't going around knocking things off. We were, yeah. you know, we were more worried about people knocking our ideas off. Yeah, every so often when we did have a difficult situation or we had uh, we were found to be at fault or we'd infringed we would just deal with it you know and generally I would pick up the phone and speak to the lawyers involved and apologize and move on <laughs> which was generally the easiest thing to do rather than get into a legal battle and discover the lawyer involved was a windsurfer 
well done john you've remembered that yeah that was a good one we um yes we were being sued by the a huge in, uh, italian industrial group um which was vespa piaggio fiat i think it was a huge powerful company um and we had inadvertently uh, infringed a, a trademark and i was trying to find a solution with this Italian lawyer whose name I recognize and it turned out that he was an Italian windsurfing speed champion I think <laughs> so the conversation took a new turn and settlement was reached we became best buddies yeah I, I just think that uh, the idea of going to court can you imagine trying to take on any of those nah. you know trying to trying to go to court with any with a, with a customer or supplier it was a complete waste of time and money and it's not as though the products in our world were particularly long lived. You know, some of some yeah. of our best work, I suppose, had a life of well, several years, which was pretty good. You know, the average in that market was a few months. You know, things were just coming and going. Mm. It was like fast fashion; things were moving very fast. So it meant that it really wasn't. Chinese companies were knocking off our designs all the time, but it really wasn't worth pursuing them because we yeah. would, by the time they'd Move made on. their coffee, we were moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Say something else, John, about like the, the the flow of ideas, because as I said, this this machine that we'd created needed to be fed constantly with yeah with new product ideas, and there was I think a magic period of a few years where we were able to just you know the the ideas were just coming they were flowing naturally, and and i realized that that was a you know that was a wonderful moment <laughs> in in my career and in the life of the business but but it wouldn't last and it's something that you know it's like trying to force sales if they're not there it's it's not really a good look to be trying to force them and trying to force ideas if someone comes along and says you need to you need to come up with 10 good product ideas this week well that that doesn't happen the ideas happen when they happen whenever inspiration strikes is there anything you did though particularly to to help that or did you just ride the waves of inspiration i think we were pretty good at, at at knowing a good thing when we saw it actually and i would say that michael and i that was the skill if there was one that separated us from other businesses was that we um we had a pretty good eye for product just a natural eye for product yeah. we could see if someone was likely to sell well we knew it i think and i think there is also a knack to I'm saying that the flow of ideas can't be forced, but I think there is perhaps a knack where you get into a groove and you get used to making things happen in a certain way. And mm. I think that was helped by, I was using a certain group of designers, um, product designers, packaging designers that I was collaborating with. I think we all knew that we were on a roll those, mm. those years when the, when the company was growing very quickly. Lots of people were happy to, to work with us and to mm. be associated with us. There's a, there's a certain positive energy, isn't there, around a fast-growing business. It's a magic thing. When a business is on fire like that, it, it's a magic thing. You know, people want to be associated with it. Suppliers are happy to work with you. You know, you have a certain reputation. Staff are happy to work with you. It's a good time. Of course, though, you did leave it to go back to your original dream of becoming a beach bum. How well, was the departure? So we were lucky enough to attract the attention of a private equity company, well, more than one private equity company. And it became clear that there was uh, an opportunity to exit the business. 
which I had thought would never come, you know. I mean, I was, I guess, in my early 40s, and I was riding this tiger of the fast-growing mm. successful business, but really wondering how on earth I was ever going to be free from it. Mm. I created a highly profitable machine, but I'd also built a trap for myself. And I was working very hard, and we were successful and profitable, and, you know, everything was going... Uh, better than I could have ever dreamt business-wise. And I was, it was very clear to me that I didn't want to do this forever and that I still wanted to clear off and sail around the world on a sailing boat and do a bit more windsurfing. So <laughs> it, it, seemed, it seemed highly unlikely that that was ever going to happen. And actually I watched, I had seen other people in my position continuing to run their business into quite old, watching them still grafting away into their 60s and really hoping that somehow I could um, I would be able to escape from that but uh, deals weren't really being done in our in our market sector you know there wasn't really much M&A mm. activity in our little world so yeah so when that opportunity came along Michael and I were both ready to to grab it with both hands and and I was keen to you know I'd really enjoyed that that phase of my life and, and running that business but I certainly didn't want to do it for another 10 years or five years it had served its purpose. You know, I'd kind of brought it to, there was nothing left on the table. It had, it had gone yeah. beyond everything that I'd ever dreamt. You know, I did have certain ambitions for that company, for the business, for a collection of products and for style. And we'd achieved all of that. And yeah, financially, you know, we'd achieved more than, more than I ever expected to. So I was, um, yeah, I, I, when, I, when I could see the exit light, I was, I was ready. And I, haven't worked, and I haven't worked a day since. <laughs> <laughs> Half your life. I think that it's such a long story, and actually to condense it into a few sound bites is almost impossible. But the, the history of the, um, yeah, the relationship, primarily Michael and I, who, who worked so well together for all of those years. And I just think that's really quite unusual business partnerships 90 percent of business partnerships fail in the first 12 months it's quite unusual for them to last as long as ours did and i think that was absolutely key to our success i mean i guess we probably both would have would have made a living separately yes. but as i've said before i think it's also knowing luck when you see it knowing a good hmm. thing when you see it and that's actually you know being able to spot it and capitalize on it Thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, talking thank to you. Thank you, yes. Happy to be thank here. You. Nice to be here. But thank okay. you for, um, for, for taking me down this memory lane, because I have spent, you know, the last kind of week or so, I have spent quite a lot of time just thinking about those days, you know, those early days, and it has been quite, it's stuff I haven't really thought about for a number of years, and I found it quite interesting. So thanks for turning me on to it, John. Thank you.